Our teaching text today is from Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's pray. God, this week, the world failed. Mm. People failed. Humans failed this week, God. Mm. But you did not fail. Mm. God, I am so grateful. We are so grateful for this tangible comfort that you have given us in this church, Mm. in this community. Lord, I just pray for John today and the words that he speaks over this salt and this light. God, we are the salt and the light that you've left here and for the work for us to do. Help us to feel your comfort and your peace. Let us listen today and take away the message that you have for us and to go and spread this into this dark world, this light that you profess in your word to us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, we're continuing this morning to look at the most important sermon ever preached. And it's a sermon, the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus, is one that uh, inspires and perplexes people of all faiths and no faith. And it's a sermon that if we actually intended to obey it in community, it could purify the church of its idolatry, it could renew the church of its inner decay, could strengthen the church with its moral clarity, and could reconnect the church with its Savior. Remember how Matthew begins, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus went up on a mountainside. When he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside. His disciples came to him. He sat down, and he began to teach them, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, because they will be called children of God. And blessed are you when you're persecuted because of righteousness' sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you're insulted, persecuted, and people falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus lays out this vision of the beneficiaries of the kingdom. It's not full of oughts and shoulds. It doesn't begin with moral imperatives. It begins with this proclamation of who is blessed in the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God, led by Jesus, is going to operate. And these beatitudes taken all together give us this picture of the rhythms of the beatitudinal life. We see it all together. Susan, I might need your help here. I need everybody's help here, okay? (laughs) We see all together the rhythms of the life of the Beatitudes, how Jesus lifts us up out of our spiritual poverty. 
He blesses us and he dignifies us. He brings us to a place of honor and belonging. He loves us into dignity. Jesus then, having dignified us, purifies us, leading us into the third through the sixth beatitude. He changes our allegiances. He, he, he cleans up and reorients our affections. He, he transforms us from the inside out. The deepest longings of our, our hearts are replaced with the deepest longings of His heart, and He gives us a new purpose. We join Him in the way of peace. And we saw how last week, how the way of peacemaking often leads to some kind of persecution or to some kind of failure. In either way, it throws us on our knees and it puts us back into being beneficiaries and recipients of the first beatitude. We find ourselves poor in spirit and at the mercy of God again in our spiritual poverty. And followers of Jesus are perpetually living in this kind of forward-moving lifestyle. We're always in this kind of rhythm of progress where it's almost like we get up off our knees and we fall back down again, and He just lifts us by the hand and dignifies us again. In our poverty, He purifies us. He gives us purpose, and then we often fail and are persecuted, but this is the rhythm of the Christian life. Somebody said that baptism is like jumping on a moving train. There's no such thing as a stagnant or the complacent Christian because Christians are always moving forward, always keeping in step with the Spirit, moving in toward our sanctification. And as Jesus transitions from this preamble of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes into the sermon proper, you may notice that the voice has shifted. He goes from these uh, universal pronouncements about who is blessed, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, to these direct explanations about the role of beatitudinal believers in public life. And he starts talking to you. It goes from third person abstract to a second person talking to you and to y'all kind of conversation. And I want you to note well uh, Jesus' words here in verses 13 through 16. Uh, what he does say and what he does not say. Watch what he does not say. He does not say you should be the salt of the earth. He does not say you could be the salt of the earth if only you got your act together. He does not say you might be the light of the world or you will be the light of the world if he does something that's different. Jesus says you are the salt of the earth. He says you are the light of the world, which is a present tense reality. Speaking to the disciples, he says, you, addressing this community of disciples, present tense, are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Have you ever got a compliment from someone and you didn't know, like, what it meant? Or you didn't know, like, is that a compliment? Thank you, I guess. To understand what Jesus is saying here, we have to understand he's, he's giving us metaphors. And when someone uses a metaphor, you have to ask, what is the metaphor for? What is the message that Jesus was encoding into these images of salt and light that we should therefore decode and so we can understand uh, who we are in the world according to Jesus? And to understand what he's getting at, we have to ask about the essential purposes of salt and light. In the ancient Near East, salt had a number of essential purposes. Um, one of the primary ones was as a preservative. Salt as a preservative actively de delayed the decaying process of food. So in a world that lacked refrigeration, salt was a game changer. Uh, salt, historians say that salt was a key factor to the founding of civilization. 
In a world with no refrigeration, it helped to eliminate the seasonal availability of food so you could store food for a longer time. You're no longer just hunting and gathering on a daily basis. Food could be transported at distance, so it has a massive impact on the economy and culture and the development of cities. Uh, the phrase that a person is not worth their salt uh, comes from the, the time when, when salt was used as a currency in, a, in, the, in, in the slave trade. The person would say that that person is not worth their salt, not worth the currency that it would cost to, to, to own them. Uh, the, the prefix sal and salary has to do with a person's allotment of salt. Salt had a huge, huge role to play in human history and the development of culture. But primarily, it was about preservation. Salt was a preserving agent. The additional thing that we all think about salt as more frequently is salt was just a seasoning. It, was a, it, it added flavor. It made stuff taste better. So um, if you eat eggs without salt, it's just kind of sad. It's like, this doesn't feel right. Um, if you have, like, chicken soup and it's chi- unseasoned, like, with no salt, you're like, this isn't right. This is not how it's supposed to be. Or French fries, they just don't work unless they're salty and they make you salivate and then drink something else unhealthy. <laughs> and the contrast of salt heightens the palate and it can improve flavor. And Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You, my followers, are the salt of the earth. People who live in the Jesus way are preservatives. They uphold and maintain and delay the natural process of decay. And people who live in the way, in the way of Jesus as people of contrast, enhance the flavor of the earth. People who live in the way of Jesus, in their very presence, make things just taste richer and last longer. Now, every metaphor has its limits. Too much salt can be a bad thing. If you ever made a batch of cookies and you way overdid the salt, you did tablespoons instead of teaspoons, a very disappointing batch of cookies. Uh, too much salt can kill crops. If you go out and like salt your neighbor's yard, they're not going to have green grass this season. Don't do that to them. And it seems to me that Jesus, like knowing that salt could be abused, Jesus had in his mind um, a suspicion or an awareness that his followers were more likely than not in human history going to be a minority presence. They're going to be something that is sprinkled in among a bland society. Most people are not going to get it, and most people are not going to be like it. Salty people are few and stand in contrast to the majority culture that is bland without them. That's what he said. He said, you are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So he says, you, my people, followers in my way, you're the salt of the earth, so stay salty. Stay, remain as people of contrast, as preservatives, as purifiers, as people who extend life and strengthen relationships and add flavor and richness. Stay salty. And then he goes on and says, you are the light of the world. Now, light is, is something like we, we all are all benefiting from the light in this room. We benefit from the light of the sun. Without light, obviously, we live in darkness. Light clarifies. Light exposes. Light promotes life. Shining light on a topic connotes the elimination of ignorance or corruption or fear Tulsa World has had a couple of articles of late talking about um, communities replacing street lamps in their neighborhoods, especially uh, they see where the street lamps come back, uh, crime tends to go down. 
talking about putting street lamps back on the highway. There's something like 23% of highways in the city, like the lights are still out. Um, light eliminates ignorance and corruption and fear and even things like promotes safety and decreases crime. The presence of light causes grass and trees and crops to grow. The presence of light and the sun has a ton of health benefits. Uh, many of us would say we, we suffer from seasonal affective disorder because we're getting less hours of sunlight. And it's just like we're just kind of blue uh, because it's so gray and brown outside. Um, you know, the, the sun helps lower our blood pressure and increases bone health, brain function. It can ease depression. It can improve the quality of our sleep. It can boost growth in children. It enhances immune system functioning. In the Bible, light is associated with joy, with knowledge, with life, with hope, with salvation, and with walking the path of wisdom. And Jesus says that you, people who are following in the Jesus way, people who are living in the Sermon of the Mount way, by nature of your very being and and presence, cause life to flourish by driving out fear and embodying a hope-filled existence. Jesus says, you're the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, Jesus here is making a nuanced point. In the next chapter, we're going to talk about secret behaviors. We're going to talk about prayer and fasting and giving. And Jesus indicts the religious leadership in in Jerusalem in particular who did these things with the motivation of being seen for them. They're they're being seen in the same way that Jesus is admonishing his disciples' actions to be seen, but it's prompted by a different motivation. He said, let others see what you're doing that they may glorify not you, but your Father in heaven. Let your light shine before others so that God may be glorified, not let your light shine before others so that you'll gain glory and tension and social media clout and respect from other people. He says, don't hide who you are. Love God and be yourself. Live, live in the light. It's a gift to the people around you. So he says, stay salty and shine brightly. Jesus could have used any number of metaphors uh, when he came at this. These two are especially rich in the ancient Near Eastern world and in biblical imagery. But Jesus could have used different metaphors. He could have said, you are the white blood cells of the earth. You rush to fight off infection in the human body and the human ecosystem. He could have said, you are the immune system of society promoting the integrity and the flourishing of the human family ecosystem. And Jesus gives images that remind the believers, that reminds us, your presence in the world, in following the teachings of Jesus, naturally preserves and purifies and strengthens and clarifies and improves and multiplies life. That in just in your very being, As a person who is striving to remain in Jesus and let his words remain in you, a person who's striving and in your intentions to live in the Jesus way and live in the Sermon on the Mount, you're this preserving, purifying agent in the world by nature of your very being. It's not you should be or you could be or you might be or you will be if. People who are living in this beatitudinal rhythm of life are naturally these preserving, brightening agents in the world. 
He says, don't assume a false humility about all this. Stay salty and shine brightly. My friend Jason Jackson, uh, some of you will know, says that to his kids when he drops them off at school as a, as a call and response kind of thing, as a reminder to his children. Hey, Cora, stay salty, shine brightly, Dad. It's a reminder we're different. We're people of contrast. Where we go, the kingdom of God goes. Where we go, the life and the light of Jesus goes. So stay salty and shine brightly. You know what's so striking about all of this? Is in, in preaching this sermon and saying these words, Jesus has not assembled the best and brightest of Israel. He hasn't gotten together the high performers, the people who other people would point to as like, they are a person I respect, a religious person who's kind of got their act together. Jesus has assembled the disciples who would come around him. And I want you to remember where he is. He's, he's preaching this from the Sea of Galilee, which is the northern side of Israel, which is podunk country. He's with, he's with country folk. And Jesus is sitting on a mountain with a pretty view of the Lake of Galilee, and these folks have gathered around him, and they're ordinary people. They're day laborers, they're, 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 um, they're grandparents, they're stay-at-home parents, they're workers. It's whoever would assemble. It's ordinary people, not influencers in the seat of power. And the metaphors Jesus uses here of salt and light are essential. The metaphors are essential. We need salt, we need light, but they're also really ordinary. They're not exceptional. Nobody wakes up in the morning and goes, Oh my gosh, the sun is out again! We lucked out. We take it for granted. Nobody says, we've got salt at our house, or the fridge is still working. They're things that we take for granted. They're essential, but they're ordinary. And you'd know if they were absent. And with the metaphors he uses and the people to whom he's speaking, Jesus is not casting a vision of heroics, but of ordinary essentials. And throughout church history, the 2,000-plus years that people have been following Jesus and trying to make his name great in our cities all around the world, all throughout church history, the primary means of spreading the gospel has been from regular people to regular people. Not people with microphones or people who stand in front of the church. The primary means of spreading the gospel throughout church history has been regular, normal people doing their thing, trying to embody the life of Jesus where they live and work and play. It's not spiritual giants or prayer warriors, but it's men and women like you and me who in embracing this pilgrimage of following Jesus have naturally behaved like salt and light. Preserving, upholding, strengthening, adding flavor and richness to life, and naturally attracting other people to follow Jesus. It's people like Joan Beverly Spence. This used to be my office right over here that says nursing room. And uh, when we were first getting started, I, uh, I moved over here uh, from Asbury, and I was in that office alone for like six months. And uh, it was like an introvert's paradise for a while after being around so many people at Asbury. And uh, at the time, before we had launched, there were like 20 of us, 25 of us who would say, we're Cornerstone, there was nothing to show for it. And Joe Spence came over, and uh, Joe had been at Asbury, Joe and Beverly had been at Asbury for 30 years. Um, Joe had been the director of operations at Asbury, we were co-workers, you know, as a guy I really respect. And Joe had recently retired. And Joe said, 
John Beverly and I are in. And we've got, I've got 50 hours a week, and you tell me whatever you need, and I'm going to do it. And he did it. They did it. Um, Joe and uh, Choppy Goforth, I think Choppy is in the room or will be at the next service, uh, came in here. We're measuring how many people we thought could fit in here, how many butts we could fit in each pew. Uh, you know, they were getting out and measuring, uh, you know, the number of cars we could squeeze into the parking lot. Joe worked with contractors to redo the front steps out here. They used to be carpeted and moldy. Um, they helped us redo the carpet. Joe lined up the contractors so that we could put in the bathrooms over here that used to be filing cabinets. Beverly put hundreds and hundreds of hours in this room praying for you, praying for our church, praying for followers of Jesus around the world. Beverly bought these candles like three weeks ago. Um, many of you over the last week have been texting me pictures of Papa Joe and Beverly uh, holding your children. Uh, they built all of the office furniture for the staff. They led groups. Uh, they wrote policy for our board. Uh, we sent Beverly uh, on a mission trip with, with Bryn and Brody uh, to Lebanon to meet with pastors from a persecuted country, helping us scout out uh, what can we do to be partners with the persecuted church. Um, uh, they counseled many couples in our church before they got married. I know of five couples at least in our church who did premarital counseling with Joe and Beverly. Um, Bryce and Christine, Philip and Hannah, Brian and Caitlin, Caleb and Carly, and John and Emily Odom. Uh, man, they just, they hopped in. Over the years, they led things like Financial Peace University at Asbury. Many of you don't know this, but they took in something like 25 or 27 foster kids uh, over the years. Joe met with the coaches at Union High School at Coaches Fellowship for many years. And when you list it like all of that, it's amazing. But, you know, when Joe and Beverly sat right here, it's not, not like all of us were like, oh, my gosh, Joe and Beverly Spitz are in the room. But when you list all like that, you think, oh, my gosh, the things that God has done through an ordinary couple. And we had greatness among us. It's the essential ordinariness of the follower of Jesus. People who are slowly going one direction who are making a, a lifetime of small and big choices for the benefit of others in the name of Jesus Christ. A church father named Cyprian said, we do not speak great things, we live them. Another person said, dream big and act small. And when Jesus gives us this imagery of being the salt of the earth and the light of the world, it's dream big imagery but it's constituted by lots of little choices for the benefit of others in the name of Jesus over the course of a lifetime. It's comprised of small acts of faithfulness. And these acts follow a person who is in progress in Christ. Someone who is in progress. Someone who's growing, who's cooperating with the Holy Spirit, who's following the path of the Beatitudes, who's cooperating with the Holy Spirit and increasing in like Christ-likeness over a lifetime. In the end, all we have to offer anybody else is the person that we're becoming. There's not a product of our life that we can separate from, the, from our very being, from our character. All we have to offer the world is the person that we're becoming. Four weeks ago, Joe and I had lunch at Goldie's just down the street. And Joe said, John, you've got me reading the Sermon on the Mount. Man, Jesus is 
this is really challenging stuff. He said, I always heard if you get in a fight, you hit first and you hit hard. But Jesus says, do not resist an evil person and love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He said, this is really making me rethink some things. When I am 66 years old, if the Lord gives me those years, I pray that I am still learning and progressing like that. My gosh. They were, grap- they were grappling with the ethical and the practical consequences of the words of Jesus. I think, you know, at 65, they left their home church, and I don't mean to eulogize them now, but at 65, they left their home church where they'd been for 30 years. They'd left the Sunday school classes where they'd been, raised children with the other people because they were committed to the mission, because they were restless and wanted to see the work of God advance and wanted to be part of it. They were people in progress. There were people who were eager to act in the interest of others who weren't like aspiring to do great things. They didn't have stay salty and shine brightly on their mirror in the morning, but they did it. In following Jesus and striving to live in these beatitudinal rhythms, they did it. They let their light shine by loving God and and as he was changing with them, cooperating with the Spirit, paying attention to those little nudges, those little opportunities, letting out what he was doing in them on the inside. And they did this, and we're invited to do this, not out of some kind of sentimental thing like we never know how many days we're going to be given, but we do this in allegiance to Jesus Christ out of allegiance to Jesus Christ for what he's done for us, we are perpetually in progress. What a beautiful example we've been given, church, in this couple, people that we could, we could model our lives after in many ways. They let their light shine. And you'll notice that if you read the news this week or as we've swapped stories, we have not been telling the stories of their careers. We've not been telling the stories of their assets or their home or their vehicles. We've been telling the stories of their choices and their character, the big and small ways in which they've shown up. And we want that to be our legacy and that to be our, our, our gift to the world too, that in following Jesus, we would salt the earth wherever we go and enhance its flavor and preserve and purify, that we're, wherever we go in embodying the life of Jesus, we would shine brightly in dark places and people would find themselves loved. Allegiance has been a word on my mind this week. There's been another word on my mind this week, and I haven't really shared this with very many people, but it's defiance. I'm really ticked off about what happened. I'm ticked off at our enemy. And, and my, the, this word defiance keeps bubbling to my surface. It's like, forget you. We're going to follow Jesus. Yes, the enemy wants to to subvert the work that our church is doing, not to make it narcissistic or all about us, but yes, Joan Beverly were on their knees in this place. Joan Beverly were at the front lines of seeing a community like be shaped by the gospel and take the way of Jesus seriously. Yes, the enemy always wants to steal and kill and destroy, and I just feel this sense of defiance like we're not stopping. In allegiance to Jesus Christ and in defiance of the works of the enemy, we are continuing or work. Joe and Beverly would want us to do it. In defiance of the works of the enemy, we are continuing to slowly go in the way of Jesus, learn together to be a community shaped by the gospel, learn together to be a Sermon on the Mount community. 
Gospels say the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So we do not defy in hatred. We defy the works of the enemy in love. We do not defy the works of the enemy with vengeance, but with prayer. We sow tears of prayer. They might reap a harvest of righteousness. We pray not only for the violence that was enacted in our community this week, but for the violence all around the world that is leaving a wake of victims and pray that God's kingdom would come. His reign would come to bear in every corner of the earth. And we wait with hope for the day when Christ returns in final victory and he, re- he renews and he restores all things. And so we do not give in to despair. We grieve, but we grieve with hope. And we stand in allegiance to King Jesus and in defiance of our enemy. The kingdom of God may come. God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So friends, grieve. Cry, lament, get help, and also persevere and move forward. I was, I was with Joan Beverly's daughter, Amanda, this week, and we both had Hebrews 12 uh, on our heart. And I, and I ended my sermon, I didn't, it wasn't in my notes, but I ended my sermon last week with Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, and it came up again in conversation with Amanda. And she said, John, my parents like, are still moving forward in the kingdom. My parents are still praying just like they did. So in view of this company of witnesses, throw off everything that hinders, the sin that so easily entangles, the little sicknesses that can be birthed in our heart in defiance of our enemy. Repent, throw it down, follow, run with perseverance, the race that's been marked out for us in community. Oh, what a worthy calling to give our life to in allegiance to Jesus and in defiance of our enemy and in unity with the family of God. Grieve and cry and lament and also, church, persevere. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the pioneer of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of his heavenly Father. Let's pray. Jesus, we need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We are distractible. We are weak. We lack faith. And yet also through the Holy Spirit, you've given us everything we need for life and for godliness. Jesus, would you just pour out your Spirit on your church? Would you equip us to be people who in our very being embody the light and the life of Jesus in the world? In our weakness, would you show yourself strong? In our disbelief, would you give us faith to believe? Because there just has to be more than our experience right now. There has to be more than just like trying to conjure up the effort and the love Would you do a work in our spirit, a regenerative work in our spirit that restores our faith in you, that gives us the courage to follow you in community? In the middle of this tragedy, would you do something glorious and something beautiful? Would you shine brightly? Would you pour out your spirit on on everyone who's been touched by this and even on the perpetrator of evil?
Pray, Lord Jesus, that you would wound him in the deepest parts of his heart with the love of Jesus, that you didn't invite him back home into the family of the Father. Lord Jesus, help us to be people who do battle in prayer, who defy the works of the enemy in faithfulness to Jesus, who refuse to give up hope even amid suffering and disappointment, who fix our eyes on you, Jesus, who suffered and lost just like we do. And, and buoy and strengthen and anchor our hearts in, the, in the, the, the promised hope of the resurrection of the dead and your return to renew and restore all things. Help us to be immovable, unshakable, and steadfast in, in their pursuit of Jesus. Faithful pilgrims encouraging each other along the way. Help us, Lord Jesus, to be like salt, to preserve, to purify, to strengthen, to enhance, to be like light, to shine brightly, to give hope. Jesus, we ask that you would do this work in us. All of us who pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.